The show today could be a standalone episode, but it also bookends very nicely with Dr. Andrew Gallimore and his DMT research. American Bolden is always searching for a way to figure out how can we disagree on issues but bring humanity together for the common good. Perhaps psychedelics and what we learn from being on them could teach us a thing or two about how it is that we are in relation with one another in order to make a more perfect and unifying society for us to live in. So sit back, grab yourself a cup of coffee or whatever it is that you're into. You're listening to America Emboldened with Greg Bolden. Let's get emboldened. America Emboldened. Greg, I feel emboldened. You don't know the founding fathers. You don't know what they did. You don't know what they sacrificed. We have lost touch with the principles in the Constitution. Nobody's read the Declaration of Independence. You are voting for socialism, and you got what you voted for. Welcome, bold Americans, to another episode of America Emboldened. As always, I'm your host, Greg Bolden. Let's get straight into today's show. If you've noticed, I've been shifting my focus a bit to bringing in another element to the political sphere, the political conversation. When I started America Emboldened, I had a mission statement that I was going to try to figure out why different people cannot speak to one another, why Democrats are horribly polarized against Republicans, despite the fact that we're all on the same earthly journey. We all want, I believe, what's best for our children, for the earth, and for future generations. And so when I look at the news of the week, when I look at what's going on in politics, I try to cut through the crap and just go to how does the average person see this and why does it matter? Let's get away from the mainstream news, the type of uh, environment where people might influence the way you think. And as I've gone on that journey, I found myself now thinking more about energy, thinking more about what is it about the way that I approach topics that can sometimes ruin the show that I'm about to do and have people turn off and have negative responses to it? Or what is about the positive things that I do on the show that people are going, I love the episode you did yesterday. And as I've been hosting people like Laurie Elizabeth or Chris Largent and talking about the esoteric world, I realized there's got to be a place where I can marry the energy side of stories and how we relate to one another, as well as the political side of what people need to know, things that they haven't been learning about. And so I was very excited lining up this show, speaking with somebody that I knew from a long time ago, back in college, but I haven't talked to him since college. That's how long it's been. Even back in college, we weren't incredibly close, but we were both in the television and film world as far as majoring in it. And we both have that love and passion for film uh, just to this day. So today I'm bringing onto the show, David Darling. Now, David Darling is now a trained energy healer. He's been practicing shamanic healing for over 10 years. He's also a spiritual life coach, helping people uncover and transform the limiting beliefs that are holding them back. He's guiding them to find clarity purpose, and inner peace in their lives. 
He is also an advocate for the decriminalization and legalization of psychedelic therapies, and he provides specialized coaching sessions around preparation and integration work with these powerful medicines. So without further ado, welcome David Darling to America Emboldened. Hey, Greg. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Like, it's it's fun starting off a show with somebody that I, I actually know, um, but I don't know, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. we haven't seen each other, you know, we're seeing each other through a camera on opposite sides of the world, basically, and in a sense, part of different parts of the globe. But I don't know the journey you've been on. You don't know the journey that I've been on. Yeah. And yet... That's the one thing that's a constant for all of us. We're all on this ball in order to make the most of our lives. We all want to have success. We all want to be loved to give love. And I'm wondering, as I'm doing this podcast, I'm going, am I contributing to that environment that I'd like to see in the world or am I tearing it down? <laughs> and so for somebody who is a trained energy healer, somebody who is into shamanic healing, I'm going to start right there. Tell me about your journey. How did you get into the line of work that you're doing, but really the spiritual journey of your life? Hmm. Well, it's a very big question. Um, where can we start with that? I mean, I think like most people who get into healing work, it starts with your own healing, you know? So this started for me with a sense of, wanting to feel better back when I was in my early 20s, living in New York City, feeling confused. You know, I was raised in, as many of us were, in, in church, in the Christian model. Um, and that worked for a time, but then that stopped working for me. And so I began asking questions and reading lots and lots of books, which were was both helpful and also confusing because it was like, too much, you know, I had spiritual indigestion basically from trying to put too many things together. And I, and then to simplify, I started doing uh, breath work. I found a, a breath worker and that was my sort of entry point into the healing world. And that was really wonderful. Uh, I liked it because it didn't have any ideology, right? There's no buy-in to breathing as yeah. a way of clearing energy, moving energy. Um, it was guided with a, a breath worker who would take me through these emotional release processes and really wonderful. From there, um, sort of by happenstance or, or divine appointment, I met a shaman, an Australian shaman that was friends with this breath worker. And I did a healing session with her and it was like a homecoming. It was instantly um, just felt it just felt right. It just felt good and natural. And I don't know, it was one of those moments that was kind of transcendent. You know, I'd never had um, a shamanic healing before, which I do now. Uh, being uh, healed with feathers and rattles and, and sacred song and things I didn't understand working with the spirit world, you know? Right. Um, so I worked with that woman for about 10 years. She also introduced me to she took me to Peru to have my first encounter with, with ayahuasca, um, which is for people that don't know, a very um, intense jungle brew, hallucinogenic plant medicine, gaining a yeah. lot of popularity these days. Uh, and then from there, you know, worked with another group 
that I still work with down in Santa Fe. And they kind of more formally trained me to do shamanic healing. Um, and I've had, yeah, my own practice for 10 years. It just felt like if I, like you, if I can help people, you know, and this is where life has has funneled me into this path. I wasn't planning on doing this. Right. Um, and so I've been doing it since then because it's just feels right to do, you know? And, and, and I want to point out to people, you haven't, you're not like a, a shaman that has disconnected from the world completely. You still know what's going on in politics. You still know what's going on uh, that are major pressing issues in people's lives. You're still paying attention to that, but you're looking at it through a different lens than the average person. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I'd say so. I'd say even in the last couple of years, I've been through a process of sort of deconstruction where I feel less and less identified with any political ideologies and kind of seeing that substrate underneath all of us, the common experience of what do we all really want? We all just want to be happy. And we just have different ideas of how to get there, right? And that's what we're, we're busy arguing about. Unfortunately, we're arguing way too much about all this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. We'll, we'll get into that today a little bit. Um, okay. So when you're talking about the shamanic healing, I have two different audience members that are going to be listening to the show. And so <laughs> I'm going to try to identify you for David right now. So that way, you know that you're represented. The first audience member is going to be the ones going, Yes. So glad that Greg's going back here with yet another guest. I can't wait to hear what David's going to say. It's going to take me further into my journey of where I want to be. And for that, this episode is definitely for you. The other listeners are going to go, oh, Greg, can you just go back to giving your takes on the politics? I'm not in the esoteric. I'm in the energy world. I don't believe there's anything to all this mumbo jumbo. Um, and why should they stick with the conversation that we're going to talk about today. Why is this so important to understand this place of energy work versus disconnecting from it and just letting life play out? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know that it is important. If they don't want to listen to me, they certainly don't have to. I'm not telling people to turn off your show. Um, but it is a common experience. And what I'm talking about isn't really esoteric. I didn't read any secret books that you've never heard of or get initiated into, you know, secret lineages. And that's kind of where this journey has brought me now as a middle-aged, you know, dad and husband, uh, is to just live a good life. You know, the, the shamanic path to me is not to keep my head in the clouds, interacting with the spirit world and whatever there's a time and a place for that kind of work, but it, the, the real work of it to me is how does this help me to live a better life? Mm -hmm. And a big part of it for me was moving out of New York city, which is its own very liberal bubble and coming to Colorado where I am now, where there's a wonderful mix of people. And that was kind of the first step in my deconstruction. It was not knowing when I encountered people, what their political views were, right? Cause in New York, you can right. kind of assume everybody's, vote in the same way, very blue state for the most part. And out here, you know, I see Trump signs, I see Biden signs and everything in between. And, and it ended up, it ended up having the effect on me that I don't care that I'm just interested in meeting the person and mm -hmm. talking to the person and realizing, like I'm saying that they want the same things 
that we all want. Everyone just wants to be happy and we have different ideas about how to go about that. So it, for me, it all comes back to just awareness. That's the common thread of life. If you don't want to use the word God or spirit or anything that sounds woo-woo or far out there to you, it's just about awareness or consciousness, right? We're all aware beings. We can all agree on that. You know, so that's kind of the bottom line um, that we're that we're building on. And the problem we get into is is the the objects of our awareness, the things we get obsessed on and focused on and arguing about. And we get so distracted by that that we forget who we are. We forget that our our base nature is just open awareness. It doesn't have any judgments. It is unconditional love. It is spacious, curious, patient. It's all the qualities we aspire to be. That's who we naturally are. So the spiritual path for me is not finding who I am or discovering something. It's actually shedding all these layers that I acquired through my youth, through school, through church, through parents, through everything else, and getting jumbled up with ideas about who I think I am. But who you are is not who you think you are. Who you are has nothing to do with the thoughts in your head, which is a far out concept for a lot of people because we get so identified with our thoughts and our beliefs yep. that we drive ourselves crazy. We And we don't know who we are. You know, yep. we're the only species on the planet that doesn't know what it is. Everything else, a tree knows how to be a tree. Your dog knows how to be a dog. People are scrambling around trying to figure out what are we, what are we and what are we for? Are we, we're trying to make machines to replace everything that we do, but, but what are we for? Why are we actually on this planet to begin with? So one of my guests, Laurie Elizabeth, she was talking about the same concept uh, several months ago. And she said, you know, we're human beings. And at some point in time, we started becoming human doings that everybody's so busy doing something that they forgot the presence of being. They forgot in order to understand themselves, it can't be found inside a phone. It can't be found inside an identity of politics that the only place you can find is searching deep within. And uh, I think you will get this word as well, a deconstruction of oneself as to understand why you are the way that you are. And I have shared before on the show there, I believe there's three different realities. There's the reality of how we see ourselves. There's a reality of how other people see us. And then there is just how we are. And the saddest part I think in life is the majority of individuals never get to experience themselves just as they are, because there's so much noise around us, so much yeah. distraction and slant. What's yeah. your thoughts on that? Well, that takes me to psychedelics, really, because that's been the greatest tool that I've seen in my life and people around me um, as a way to bypass all of that noise as we call it to see what's actually underneath who am i behind the curtain you know what's going on underneath this we spend so little time looking within right we're so externally focused on our lives and and staying busy and staying online and scrolling and and streaming and 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 living our lives a lot of it's necessary but it's equally necessary to have a meditation practice or any kind of quiet time where you're just reflecting, you know, and being quiet, being still, right? When I talk about the true, our true nature being openness, awareness, it's also stillness. It's also silence. Who we are 
is before our thoughts, it's before our language, it's before we're doing anything. And it's really a hard concept for us to understand. It's actually so simple that, you know, the mind can't understand it because the mind has to chop everything up and complexify it into millions of pieces and try to create maps for it. But it's actually just this right here, just connecting with you. This is it. It's just awareness talking to itself. <laughs> Psychedelics. So uh, I've never touched them. Um, I'm a prude. Uh, I've never got into smoking marijuana even. Uh, I can say that with a straight face too. That wasn't my <laughs> world whatsoever. When I hear about psychedelics, it's a horrifying thing to me to think about my brain is going to be altered for a time period where I'm not going to experience the world the safe way that I've come to box things into. For listeners that are aware of uh, what psychedelics do, I apologize for where I'm going, but I just want everybody else to be on the same page. When you're talking about psychedelics that help you on your journey, uh, you just talked about the ayahuasca. What are some other psychedelics that you're referring to? And then can we start breaking down what that's enabling for individuals? Uh, primarily ayahuasca and psilocybin mushrooms I've mm -hmm. worked with. Um, there's been some other ones, but for the sake of this conversation, we can keep with those two. They work in somewhat similar ways. Um, what do you want to talk about with them? Sure. So uh, why? Why, why psilocybin? Them? Why mushrooms? Why do them? What's happening in that deconstruction event that's allowing people to focus inward that you find to be healing? Um, make a case for me if I were to say, you know, hey, you know what, David? I, at times, struggle with an OCD perspective of needing to be perfect and too much anxiety because I put a lot of pressure on myself. Maybe I need to deconstruct that or issues with my, my past life of family issues or whatever I want to deconstruct. Yeah. Why is that so helpful? Because I've read the studies, but I'm looking for your yeah. experience and what you bring to that. Hmm. There's different ways to look at it. I mean, one way is that is what, what I was talking about earlier about identification. So we become so identified with our thoughts and our beliefs and just our personality selves, so the ego self, I call it. I mean, many people call it. Um, so that's one amazing thing that, that these plant medicines have shown me is when you go into their world, um, it becomes very clear that that's not who you are. It's an aspect of who you are, but it's not the core of who you are. It's not your real self. Right. And this might sound weird again for some listeners, but who you are was not born and will never die. Again, it's the eternal consciousness, eternal awareness. So the body comes, the personality comes, and the life unfolds. And then the body goes, but there's awareness the whole time and it never changes. It's not affected by anything that's happened in your life, any trauma or challenging scenario you've been through like at a deep spiritual level of awareness you're untouched by all of it so to me the psychedelics uh, revelations came as a relief right because i was like many people suffering from like being too serious and too stressed out about am i doing it right am i being the best me i can be am i making people happy or whatever and and it became, the game changed after that, where it wasn't about who am I in the world, but like, who am I 
in relationship to myself? And do I know myself? And do I have that that knowing and that connection to what some people call God? I just now call spirit for sake of trying to be more open with the language. Um, but to me, that's kind of the whole work is when you know who you are, when you can deconstruct yourself to know that you are just awareness, that you are just spirit, everything else falls into place because it bypasses the mind, which is forever endlessly busy trying to construct your life and manage every little part of it. It's an impossible task. And it's why people are having anxiety and depression and all sorts of things these days, because we're just overtaxing ourselves in a way that we're not meant to function. You know, so I, again, bring it back to like, it's very, it's actually very simple. <laughs> you made a comment at the very beginning there that we're entering the psilocybin world, the plants world. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm kind of curious about that language that you just used because I've often looked at a scene when I'm out up on the mountains, right? And I see these trees that are going on for miles, the rolling hills to the water. And I can't help think, but there's this communication that's going on. That's very complex between birds and trees and the butterflies flying by me, the water as well. I always feel like there's this beautiful connection at a beach as the waves hit the shore and on a hiking trail in the middle of the mountains. And in that moment, I feel like I'm experiencing the plants world in the mountains or the oceans world, the waters world at the beach. And it's always been a place where I can feel relaxed. I'm curious by taking something like uh, psilocybin, which is a, a fungus mushroom, right? Mm -hmm. By taking something like that, is it truly that we are reconnecting maybe with those roots and rooting ourselves instead of having a brain that's just going around here, is that bringing ourselves into this perspective of the tree doesn't care that it's a tree. The grass doesn't care that it's grass. Is, is that kind of what you're getting at? Like it deconstructs and you don't care about the ego. Instead, it's a different perspective. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. That's actually the other, I think, big piece of how these plant medicines work is they also make it very clear that you are a part of everything our interconnected nature, right? That's another thing that we've forgotten and are suffering from right now, which again is all the mind thinking we're separate, the belief in separation, you know, in, in sort of my school of thought with the healing work I do, that's sort of the bottom line. The only thing that you need to heal is your belief in separation, the belief that you're separate from anything, from God, from nature, from each other, from ourselves. Sometimes we feel disconnected, right? So, these medicines have a wonderful way of bringing us back into harmony by reminding us like this is all a beautiful cosmic dance that is really incomprehensible to the mind. There's no way you could ever understand how the trees and the river and the mycelium and the sunshine and the rain and how it all works in perfect harmony, how the trees know when to blossom, when to drop their leaves, when to fruit and the animals that pollinate. And it's just, it's, it's so complex and it's so beautiful, right? You can get lost in that uh, in that awe uh, and that wonder of like, this is incredible. We are living in a miraculous environment in a miraculous space. But the mind comes in and it comes in with labels. That's a tree, that's a river. I've seen that before. I know what that is. 
there's some quote I forget who said it, which is like once you once someone tells you the name of a tree, you'll never see a tree again, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like we only pull up the label and we don't interact with what the thing is, you know. So there's some wonderful meditations like walking meditations where, say, you walk through the woods and you pretend you don't know what anything is called. Pretend it's the first time you've ever seen a tree in your life and get into that playful space of being a child. And it just awakens parts of us that are like, this is all, I never have seen this tree. I've seen other trees, but look at this beautiful creation. I miss that childlike eyes to see and hear, um, you know, having children now and experiencing it through them is a gift. But at the same time, I don't know that I've truly reached that presence back with them where my imagination's still going the exact same way. Like I could be laying down with my son, looking up at clouds and him saying, Hey, look at the horse that's coming across or look, there's Bowser. Uh, and I can say, yeah, I can see that, but I'm not sure that my eyes truly see that. And that, that's a beautiful lesson there to remember to not see with labels, but to truly see what's in front of us. And isn't that a great analogy for what is going on in the world? We've labeled everything. Mm -hmm. uh, people almost are uncomfortable not having labels. Yeah. Maybe that's, maybe that's part of the problem. I would say so. You know, I, I encountered that a lot. Uh, like people want to know which side of the thing is on before they have all the information they're they'll be ready to condemn it if they hear that it's on the other mm -hmm. side. Right. And so there is no, honest and open engagement with ideas. We don't have the ability to have conversations as adults, you know, which is why I love what you're doing here. Like you really are playing in that space of like, let's forget about our ideologies and wherever we might disagree and try to find this common space. And truly we're only able to work together to move forward if we can find a way to work together. And we right. can't do that until we can put some of this petty stuff down of, you're wrong. <laughs> part of that pettiness and part of that you're wrong, I think does come from a sense of can people actually be wrong? Can people be inverting the natural nature of life to a use that is not what nature intended it to be? And therefore that inversion leads us into a path where people are angry going, I know that that flower is not a tree. <laughs> right. Um, so don't tell me that that flower is a tree. Um, you know, don't tell me that this is the only person that stands for moral beliefs. When I know that these other people have moral beliefs too, you just may not like the fact that they stand for two other things. How much do you believe when you're working with other individuals on their own healing has been the influence of other egos into our own? And the, break this down for listeners because I might be a little heady. I understand what I'm saying. I think David, you probably get where I'm going with this. How much of like when the news media says that, you know, Republicans are useless right now because they refuse to act on a border bill and everybody gets upset. Oh, Republicans forgot to do this. But when you really look at it, you're like, Oh, there was 10 other things tied to that bill, right? <laughs> that they didn't want to sign off on they would have been fine had it just dealt with the border. And so there's people that invert that. And what I was getting with the ego 
it's the same as like, you're not good enough. And then eventually you start to believe the big lie of you're not good enough. I, I know it's convoluted. I'm trying to tie it on both ends. Uh, yeah. That makes sense at all. Uh, somewhat okay. <laughs> a little muddled <laughs> to be honest. Um, it felt muddled. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I appreciate what you're saying. I mean, yes. Kind of the direction I'd like to go with that is when you talk about inverting certain things, inverting certain truths, like for me, I get activated around technology. Like I got, I got pretty worked up this week about the Vision Pro goggles. Yeah. Like that's not the direction I think we need to be heading in as a species, right? That's not something that seems to be bringing us together, but creating more division. Like, do we all need to be sitting around with goggles on our face? Is this world not enough? Is the is the mountains and the river not enough? We need to see our apps and our email over top of it or whatever. Um, and I know that's probably reductive and annoying to people that are very excited about the Vision Pro. And I'm sure good things can come out of it too. Um, but what I want to say about that is, you know, there are things in us that get stirred that don't feel right. To go back to your question of right and wrong, because in a sense, in an absolute sense, I don't believe in right and wrong. You know, I think as Marcus Aurelius says, uh, there is there is no good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Everything just is what it is prior to our judgments of it. If we can just meet things as they are, they're not good or bad. But we, the mind immediately comes in and says, no, I don't like that, so it's bad. Or this is great. It's good. Bring me more. Um, but I think in this world, to kind of address what you're doing on the show with the political sphere is that there is still a way to engage with what's happening in the world. Uh, if that's something you feel really passionately about, this is not the direction our country should be moving in. There's still a way to take action around those things without labeling them as bad or wrong and vilifying and demonizing the people that are doing them. Right. And that's kind of another big part of, I think what we've lost as a country maybe in some ways globally, is our sense of the sacred, is our sense that this all is a miracle, that you are alive, that we have bodies and we can talk. You know, we're using technology for good right now. We're connecting and sharing this with people, right? So that's a lovely thing that we can do. Um, but we've forgotten at a base level that this is, whatever you want to call it, this is all a sacred affair that's happening. And when that goes out the window, in comes the possibility for what we call evil, right? And evil is only that, is only the ability that we have to deny what we would call sacred or divine in ourselves and in each other. You can't kill somebody if you are aware of their divine nature, right? So that's another thing that I'm trying to share with people to bring back into this conversation that will foster respect and cooperation and all the things we need is just this you don't have to agree with me we don't have to be best friends but you have to acknowledge that we're all children of of the divine of great spirit of whatever label you prefer or we're all aware conscious beings and we all have the right to live to take any kind of spiritual talk out of it right Oh no, you said right to live. I mean, the right to life people are going to think that you're on their side and not getting exactly <laughs> where that was going. I got what you're throwing down there. Um, wow. I mean, that's, 
It goes back to college. I had a professor, Dr. Larry Chap, um, and Dr. Rodney Hauser. They were the two people that probably taught me this the most. Not sure if you, you took either of their classes. I know those names, yeah. Okay. They were big into talking about one of the greatest evils that they saw coming into the world. And this is 1998, 99, somewhere around there. They said moral relativism that people were going to start picking and choosing what morals feel good to them and leaving behind the ones that actually take work to follow because they don't get instant gratification or because they want instant gratification they become kind of a cafeteria person. I think that moral is good for my life. That one over there, let little Susie down the street, believe that one. When I've been having conversations for the last couple of years on this show, I've actually been shocked at the amount of people that tell me, that they don't believe morals as a code or ethical behavior in society are a thing anymore. And they're okay with that. They're like, you know what? Who decided those morals to begin with? It should have always been personal. Uh, I'm hearing you talk about how we're all connected, that we're all deserving the same right to live on this planet with the same opportunities. And yet, how can we do that if we can't acknowledge there are certain morals that are a fabric of our being, but maybe they're right. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I think I'm another one of those people. I don't really, I don't really refer to morals or ethics in my life. I don't think that they're needed. I, you know, to me, <laughs> let me contextualize this a little bit. Um, morals and ethics are also coming from the mind right? They're like right. kind of rules. They can change over time. They can change in different cultures. So how do you, how do you make a map of like, how, how do we live with morality and with ethics, right? To me, they're not needed if we can acknowledge this substrate, the human heart that like, or the embodied spirit that we are, the acknowledgement of the divinity that we share. If that is in play, you don't really need morals and ethics. You're going to be moved to do the so-called right thing or whatever right. the situation calls for in each situation because you really, again, the mind, the ego loves loves lists and prescriptions and it wants to like make a map for how do we live and put it in a book and give it to everybody. It's why a lot of people like the Bible because there's a lot of guidelines for how to live. And, and if that works for them, great. Some people need that. But I think as a species, we're evolving to a point where it's greater than any one religion. You know, if we're going to try to figure out which religion is the right religion, we're going to kill ourselves. I mean, how many people have already died trying to enforce yeah. the, the so-called correct religion? Um, yeah. You want to cut in there? Yeah. So I guess this is where I believe the struggle then is where people get divided. The age of enlightenment, right? When you, when you talk about the people, the, the free thinkers that were the creatives that helped frame the constitution, the bill of rights, uh, they were taking back from the Greeks classical philosophy and looking at morality through the lens of the Greeks and figuring out what does that look like in the new world in, in the 1700s? And so when they created the Bill of Rights, from what I've studied and what I've read, they had agreed there were certain moral standards that were a right for every single human being. And as a result, they started framing out the document, which became the Constitution of the United States, 
that would say that, yes, you have a right to life. Yes, you have a right to free speech. Yes, you have a right to your property, which is a really important uh, right because property can be both the land as well as your children and a bunch of things that relate to you. And if we're living now in a world where people are deciding, hey, you know what? Uh, we can kind of choose. I see the problem, David, is right now society is not where you're at <laughs> to say, oh, well, we're all eating off the same earth. Yeah. And we're all here together. And I don't see society getting into that kumbaya moment anytime soon. And so maybe that's why morals were so necessary. Maybe that's why we're seeing the age of inversion and the age of things falling apart at the present moment. Maybe it's people like yourself that's going to help glue the world back together. I, I, I don't know. I'm just thinking as I'm listening here. Yeah, I mean, I think change is happening much more rapidly than it would appear from watching the evening news, right? I do think there's a lot happening under the surface, um, like these mycelium networks, you know? Like, we don't see them, but they're connecting everything. And I do think there's a lot of people with a growing awareness that are fascinated in this. There is a lot of people, um, you know, it, it, looking for psychedelic experiences and looking to kind of challenge their preconceived notions of who they are and how the world works. Um, and yeah, it's going to be somewhat iterative. It might take a couple more generations to really start to see the change that we're hoping and needing to see. Um, but in the grand scheme of things, that's very fast. 50 years is very fast. And I think, right. you know, we're really heading into something now that is, I mean, it's, it's seemed this way for a while, right? That it just keeps getting faster and faster. And some people think we're approaching that singularity with technology or whatever, but I really, feel deep in my bones that this is all preceding or part of a, a mass spiritual awakening. <clears throat> what role has AI in Neuralink and Vision Pro in a spiritual awakening? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, a lot of times, you know, we don't realize how much our adversaries are teaching us. So a lot of it can just be like showing for, for me, like when I see this stuff, I'm like, oh, that's a hard no. This is like, clearly we don't want to go down this road. Some people might need to play with the technology. They might need to lose their sense of joy or wonder or ability to connect with other people before they're like, oh shit, I'm spending way too much time like in screens and not interacting with the real world. So a lot of it's just trial and error of us playing with things and coming to these realizations in our own time in our own way everybody's wired differently everybody's got their own personalities their own programming and conditioning where they live how they grew up and and what they're interested in and it's all fine there's no right or wrong to it we're free to play with this technology as much as we want it seems really clear to me why would I, why would you ever put a neural link in your brain like that just seems like an obviously terrible idea, but people will line up to do it, you know, because that's just kind of the human body. We're like, we're really curious animals and we haven't reached the point yet of emotional maturity uh, to catch up to the things we're creating. Like we're, we're far more intellectually intelligent than we are emotionally intelligent. So we're creating things that we don't really understand how to use. I say it all the time. I have a, an eight year old daughter that like, 
because we're the last generation that grew up without screens and, and phones the way that they are now. Right. We're raising kids who a lot of them are getting it like full time. They're getting it from a really young age. I say it's an experiment. We have no idea what we're doing, how this is going to affect them long term. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm navigating it too. My daughter watches screens, but we try to be <laughs> smart about it. Oh, trust me. I have completely lost the fight. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to sit here and preach that I figured it out when I'm fighting that fight as a parent right now, I'm pretty sure as I'm recording this, my kids are on screens because I'm recording instead of talking with me. Yeah. That is actually a, a, a main guilt that I have of doing a podcast is, uh, this takes time to curate, to bring people together and have the conversations. And I've said this on my show a few times before, but I want at the end, I, I think I hit 365 episodes last week, which means that there's now a year's worth of content. You can listen to yeah. one show a day. That's bizarre to me. Um, but I want my children to be able to go back and go, you know what? I didn't know where dad was a couple of those nights, but he was putting something good into the world. I'm really paying attention to that. Right. But at the same time going, they might be on screens right now. I don't know what they're exactly doing. Hopefully my <laughs> wife's got it. I'm sure she's got it. Uh, but it is that the, the big distraction that they are being experimented upon. I can tell you what I see. I have a little bit of a different perspective than just being a dad. I've been a school teacher now in and out of the classroom since 2001. Uh, my first job was teaching at a grade school. I then went taught out of college, took some time in a journey completely different, and then wound up back now at a public school teaching high school. If I found one kid my first year of teaching that was really having struggling with, with anxiety, that was a lot. But there were, I mean, I had one or two, but it was like a lot in that class of 63 kids. Teaching 180 kids now in 2024, I'd say probably 50 to 60% of them would be classified as legitimately dealing with anxiety. And when I start speaking to them, I do something different that other teachers don't do. I tell the kids right up front, come to my classroom for lunch. Get your lunch from the cafeteria. Come down here. Eat with me. There's no cell phones allowed. <laughs> We're going to actually have conversation. And if you don't want to have conversation and you just want to sit there and listen to everybody else, you're welcome to do so, but no Chromebooks, no cell phones. I have more and more kids that come in every single year. And one of the top things that some of them say to me is, I feel like I actually am heard. I've just wanted somebody to, to, to listen to me. Uh, and I didn't feel like I had anybody, but I have people. I think we spend so many, so much time on these things that it's creating the anxiety. It's creating the, the mental unwellness that we have in society because we're forgetting to have this connection. We're forgetting to listen and to be listened to very important things for our, for our wellness. Amen to that. Yeah. I think that's a big part of it, right? Like I was saying, it's that it's creating that disconnection. Um, from each other like we're social creatures we're meant to be together we're meant to thrive in communities and take care of each other and not just see each other as like what can i get from you you know allies or adversaries or commodities or whatever but like to to meet as humans to look in each other's eyes 
and see that that light in there, whatever that is, or that that awareness, right. that soul, like whatever you want to call it, right? We are alive and we're here together, and that is remarkable. And the flip side of that is it's also can be terrifying, right? To to like, oh, I have to take care of my body. I don't know how to do that. What do I feed it? And like, right. you know, just to learn how to be a human for the kids you're teaching or seeing our kids grow up, like you see all of that sort of existential anxiety of just figuring out how to be. And then realizing as they get older that they they start to feel more separate, right? They start to realize they're not so connected to mom and dad or they're not connected to their communities or their friends. I mean, they are. That's the joke of it all is we never stop being connected. It's just the mind interferes and makes us think, oh, I'm not connected anymore. I have to figure out how to be me. And, and in comes the anxiety and, and things like that. And and it's and a lot of this is intergenerational too. So like if we didn't deal with it, our parents didn't deal with it, we just keep passing this stuff on to right. each other, you know, which is which is why I do the work that I do is like I don't want to pass this on to my children. I want to see every generation get better. I think it is. I think every generation is healing and improving upon the wounds of our our forebears. There's still a lot of work to be done, clearly. But I, I do have a deep faith that it's moving in the right direction and our children will find their own way navigating a world filled with this technology. And we might see masses of them rejected or say, this isn't yeah. the way. Let's go back to the earth. Like, let's let's learn how to grow our own food and live in small communities and have local currency and not depend on globalization and the grid for, for our survival and our well-being. There may not be a grid to rely on one of these days. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a reality. And that's not like fear tactics by any means. It's just, I, I continue to go back to if the lights go out, are you prepared to continue to live life or are you not equipped? And I feel like so many people are going to have a panic moment. Should that ever happen? And it shouldn't be. It's returning us to our natural state and we should still be able to live. But for so many, it's going to be a traumatic experience. And if that ever happens in our lifetime, there will be people that die because they cannot cope with the new reality of having to fend for themselves and not having others in the system that we've built. This leads me to something that we spoke about before the show a couple of weeks ago. You had talked about uh, this learning how to love that through your journey of uh, the deconstruction of self, where you were in New York, before you went on the journey, found a shaman and decided that that's the path that you wanted to be on, that you had the first grieve other things, grieve your childhood, mm -hmm. grieve parent uh, relationships, parental relationships. That's the same for all of us, right? We, we mm -hmm. all have emotional trauma from different parts of our life. How does one learn how to love both self and others. What advice can you give to listeners as far as the patience that's required for that or what needs to happen to start working on that? Yeah. I mean, if you don't know where to start, um, there's a lot of people in the world like me that can guide you through certain processes. Um, a lot of it for me was activated in breath work. I would do this uh, they would call it conscious circular breathing. So it's just connecting your in and out breath. Um, and after doing that for 20 minutes, some tears start to, you know, and 
eventually the my guide would ask me what's going on and there'd be like a memory from my childhood coming up i don't know i i don't it's this isn't a memory that i know about it's like something i completely forgot about that came back so so on the journey for learning how to love what's where do people begin like if, if they're like you know what i have this trauma in my past i need to learn how to still love through the trauma how does one begin that journey? Well, really with permission, you know, I think we have to give ourselves permission to feel, which is something else that we don't really like to do. We're comfortable thinking and trying to let thinking dominate our lives. But um, so much of the stuff that's unresolved in us is emotional is stuff we weren't allowed to feel that we had to suppress. Um, Trauma is a different story because trauma is typically things that were too big, uh, too overwhelming for us to feel and process in the moment. So uh, in the most kind of simplistic way, trauma is a, a, a situation that didn't get to complete itself. Mm. So it got interrupted somewhere that we kind of froze up, disassociated, went into that traumatic shock. Um, so I've known a lot of those people and, you know, there is that path too of, of learning how to um, release and resolve trauma. There's no one path to do it. You know, that's kind of the beauty of it too, is you can find people that you feel comfortable working with. I think that's of the utmost importance is to find healers and guides um, and modalities that you feel resonant with. If you have a particular belief system or if you like working with men or women or whatever, like there's just so many options out there now. Um, but a lot of it really just comes down to like making that decision and that commitment to ourselves, giving ourselves the permission, but like, it is a conscious decision. You know, at some point I was like, I need to, I want to feel better. I don't, I know this isn't how I want to go through my life. Right. So I started, you know, reading books, like I said, and seeking out ways to do this. And life just has a way of kind of funneling you where you need to be. So you can trust the intelligence of the universe, whatever you want to call it, to lead you in the right direction hmm. um, and find, you know, the right people to support you in your healing journey. Isn't it tough, though, sometimes to find the right people that are supposed to lead us? And, and the reason I share this, there was a video that I saw earlier today uh, scrolling through uh, my messages on Instagram that people are sending me stuff. And I see this video from this guy and I guess he's like a a coach for sales tactics. Uh, he's got a huge following His his name is Elliot, but I, I'm not quite sure beyond that, like what his last name is or what his chick is, but he's on there telling these guys how to manipulate other people and keep the sale alive. But then he starts like picking on people's appearances. He's like, lift your shirt up for me. And the guy looks up, he's got a little bit of a pot belly on him and stuff. And he goes, are you who your wife fantasizes after? <laughs> and I'm like, this just seems so dirty and fraudulent to me. The fact that there's men out there that feel that's the only way to attain what they want, the respect. And he starts talking about when you come home from work, you don't talk ever about how bad your day might've been. You come home excited. You know, you come home with, and I'm going, yeah, but isn't that just denying ourselves of when we have bad days? Like, 
if you're truly in that partnership in that marriage with somebody, shouldn't you be able to cry together? Shouldn't be able to celebrate together, um, to be able to share in the wins and the losses. And I'm kind of curious, like, why is it that that's so attractive as a modality for men to, to continue on to the tough guy? I can't talk about my feelings versus what you're talking about. Like, yeah, let's break this down. Let's talk about what your block is and what's going to work best for you for, you know, why is it men are still attracted to that old school thought process? It's just doubling down on control, right? It's trying to control and manipulate your life into happiness, um, which doesn't work. It won't work. It might work for a minute, you know, here and there, but ultimately it's not going to lead us to lasting fulfillment and happiness. I think, you know, we find the people that we need to find. So you wouldn't go see that coach. I wouldn't go see that coach, but people that are, resonant with that way of thinking and looking at the world might go work with this guy. Maybe some of them will love it. Maybe some of them will be like, this doesn't seem right. Um, everybody's got to find their own path, you know, and, and there's tons of terrible people that you can work with out there, <laughs> you know? So sometimes it is trial and error. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of healing work over the years and I can't say every last person I've worked with has been like a home run. This person's amazing. Like, you know, I, I, I also haven't stepped into a situation that I was like, Oh dear Lord, what have I done? Thankfully. But you know, that can happen too. If people don't use enough discernment with, you know, their, right. their healers and teachers and guides. Um, so it really does come down to, again, like listening to yourself and what you need. If you can do that, it's why the meditation, why the quiet is important because we can't hear ourselves we hear our thoughts and our thoughts are noisy, you know, call it the monkey mind. Like it just never stops going. So we need to create that space to really settle down and be able to listen to our intuition. We know what the intuition is, but that's also like a very kind of feminine coded word. Yeah. And men, men aren't intuitive. Men are like forceful and decisive and whatever. So, but the intuition is the part of us that knows without having to deliberate. It's actually much wiser than the deliberating mind, which wants to have its plans and schemes. So to be able to be quiet and still and start to tune into the intuition will guide us through life much easier in a much kind of straighter path than the zigzagging. If we're blowing in the wind, listening to our thoughts, trying to figure out you know, how to navigate right. by that tool. I want to get into a couple uh, topics here um, and maybe see where this kind of goes. So talking to Gene Atman uh, several weeks ago, uh, we were talking about the things that you need to clear from your life. And I, I kind of wanted to relate it to, uh, okay, well, people are broken. And she's like, oh, I completely disagree with you. I want to challenge you on that, Greg. People are not broken. People just have things they haven't let go of yet. And that's what they're holding on to. They're just holding on. That has been one of the most challenging statements that I've sat with for almost the last month <laughs> because I don't let things go well. And I don't really understand what this concept of clearing energy means. And I'm guessing if I still can't grasp my mind around that, that other people can't either. 
Can you give us a 101 on that identification process and letting go or how you would explain it as a shaman? Well, to, just to interject, I don't call myself a shaman. Uh, okay, but sh sh shamanic experience. <laughs> shamanic healer, yes. practitioner. I'm yeah, not yeah. So an that, initiated that's, that's shaman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, forgiveness and, and letting go is its own path of work that we have to do, and it's a big one, right? Um, and there's not one way to do that either. But, you know, I find, like, self-inquiry, the process of self-inquiry to be a really uh, effective way to start to examine our beliefs and what are we holding on to? Why, why are we holding on to it? You know, it's generally just because we think it's true, but do you ever question if what you believe is actually true? <laughs> we just assume that it is, you know, cause the mind has decided and that's yeah. how it is. So just to be able to start to question ourselves and create some context for understanding a big part of it is to be able to look at the other side of the equation. If we think a lot of our forgiveness, uh, a lot of the things we seem to struggle with letting go of have to do with other people, right? Things that they have done to us or doing to us or scheming to do to us. And, you know, to be able to ask the question, why are they doing that? You know, if I, if I was, if I was you, I would do the same as you were doing. If I was born in the totality of your circumstances and lived your life, I would do the same thing you're doing. Right. But we carry these ideas that of shoulds, right? We, we need to rid ourselves of shoulds. People should do this. People shouldn't do this. That's where we get in all the trouble, right? That's where we think we know how the world is supposed to be. And we don't know how the world is supposed to be. Nobody knows. It's spontaneously arising. There is a supreme divine intelligence. But you and I don't have the master plan. So for us to sit around and arrogantly think, those people shouldn't be doing that. This shouldn't be happening. That shouldn't be happening. This should be happening. It's madness. Like, where does that even come from? You know, like, just this idea that we think we know. You know, I think, I don't know. It's just a fear of, of not knowing it's a fear of sitting in our not knowingness terrifies us. Can I go someplace unsafe with you right now? Are you, are you open to that? I'm serious. Sure. Like I don't want to push. I don't push this boundary ever on my show, but I think that this might be like, let's apply this. Okay. Right now, if you talk about transgenderism, right? You're going to have people that go, there's no way that a male can be a female or a female can be a male. When I'm listening to you right now, I'm, I'm going, why is it not that way? Let's, let's, let's ask ourselves the question, right? Let's go. Well, what is it about my beliefs? What is it about the way that I was raised? What is it about what I was taught that's enabling me to say, yeah, I, I agree that a male can't be a female and a female can't be a male. I'm immediately going to go with what I was taught as science, biology, but I'm not going to probably go to the feelings because feelings are going to be completely different to me. Feelings are going to be a, a different world of not biology or not reality. It's the construct of the mind. Can you frame that in some way, shape or form what you were just yeah. talking about? Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. So, so what you want to, what you want to find in this is the judgment. Okay. So we'll start by saying, okay. 
it's fine for you to say male biology, male, female biology, for you to think whatever you want to think is fine, right? But the judgment tends to come with they shouldn't, they shouldn't be allowed to do that. They shouldn't say that, you know, so can you identify in like a judgment that you might have around that? Yeah. I mean, a judgment for me, it was like my daughter playing soccer, right? And she's had a couple opportunities now where she's played against people who are biologically born a male. And I sit there and I go, this kid should not be out here. Somebody could get hurt. Um, <laughs> this doesn't seem right. And so I'm getting a judgment like, no, I'm, I'm not cool with this. It's like you're biologically, you're, you're born a male. The testosterone in your muscle makeup means that you could injure one of the girls that are here. Um, instead of being like, oh, you're a girl. That's a judgment that I, I will own. Um, yeah. Well, that sounds like discernment more than judgment to me. You know, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with having those kind of boundaries. You know, I think maybe we can go too far the other way into trying to accept everyone and everything to, you know, there, it comes from a good place, right? We want people to be expressed as they are, as they feel themselves to be, whatever. That's fine. Um, but it be, can become sort of challenging to us when it infringes upon us, when it's like your daughter's soccer team or whatever, and, you know, people are commingling. Then if there's like certain, if, if it really is safety concerns, I could understand that. That doesn't actually sound like a judgment to me. But I think okay. for a lot of people, it runs deeper into feeling actually threatened at some level by transgender folks who, you know, don't fit into categories of thought that we have been operating from for a long time now. And as I see yeah. it, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say like the language of birthing people, right? <laughs> that, that to me is still one of those crazy changes that I do have a judgment about because I'm going, yeah if you're born a male, you'll never be a birthing person. We have a name for that, a biological female. And so I do get upset. I do judge when I hear that the language is being changed or that you're less of a moral individual for pointing stuff like that out. Um, in my classroom, no problem. I've, I've had plenty of kids that are transgender, ask me to call them a different name. I call them a different name. I, I have no problem in honoring that because everybody needs to be able to live this earth and their best foot forward, right? I'm not trying to, to harm anybody, but if I'm getting down to like, yeah, where's the judgment? The judgments is, is that inversion of what I've known and then feeling like for my own daughter or for my own son, it strips something from what it means to be male or what it means to be female, because we've reduced it back down to feelings. And I kind of have, that's my judgment. That's where my issue is. Yeah. Well, as I'm hearing you say that to me, it just sounds like ideas, you know? So you're going from the feelings back to the head and saying idea of being male, idea of being female. We can just, again, meet people as they are. What do you want me to call you? I don't really care. You know, are you happy being you? Um, I think, I think we're in an interesting time of really accelerated change where there are a lot of, uh, souls coming to the planet that are really shaking things up and challenging our preconceived notions of this is how men act. This is how women act. 
and it's really driving people crazy, right? A lot of people are, are very challenged by these notions and really upset by them and feel personally attacked by them. But they're just people expressing who they are, you know? And I think, and it's still what, like, some very, very tiny percent of the population that's getting this kind of response to people. It's not like half sure. of our society is all of a sudden transgender. It's a very small group of people that are sort of more loudly kind of shaking up our notions of male and female. And I think that is a service that they are doing to us to help us um, connect with this deeper part of ourselves that isn't male or female, right? We're, we're all, we all have both energies within us. We all have a male and female aspect within us. And it's become really imbalanced in the collective, right? The male, the male aspects kind of run amok and, the female's trying to come out more and be in partnership with the male. And, and we desperately need that. We need healing on both sides. So I think in a, in a sort of roundabout way, that's what these, you know, sort of courageous souls, it can't be easy to be born into this world and be transgender right now. In most cases, you know, um, I have nothing but love and respect for these souls that come in to do this, to challenge the status quo and to teach us that we are not what we appear to be. Yeah, and yet, you know, the realm of where I live in podcast world and in politics, the narrative that's going to inevitably go around this conversation, I, I can already hear the comments coming into me right now. Ding. <laughs> uh, people are going to be writing and say, well, there's an agenda that's being pushed right now onto our youth because they want to destroy the nuclear family that they're trying to de- uh, have depopul- uh, the population of the world. The WEF 2030 agenda, uh, it all p- plays into all of this. And when a critical thinker looks into these type of issues, a critical thinker would say, yeah, well, there's probably some people that are hijacking narrative for their wants and needs uh, into the future. But what I believe what that hap- happens in all that is, we deny the human experience. And so I've always disagreed with, with uh, Ben um, Shapiro. Ben Shapiro's favorite saying is, you know, facts don't care about your feelings. You're right. Facts don't care about feelings, but people have feelings. So you better care about them because that means people's lives are at risk of suicide. And we see after the pandemic where people got more loneliness that, Suicide amongst teenagers and males, especially 40 to 50 years of age, has been skyrocketing. More and more people taking their lives. And I can't help but think that part of that is because within the loneliness that people feel, within the narrative that we're telling, we're no longer caring about feelings. We've now said it's it's wrong to, to care about that. We're course correcting, pushing back. And as a result... Yeah you have a side that's it's well, it's about the facts. I get the facts. Can we have some compassion as we present them to the other individual? Yeah. I, I was recently thinking about that phrase facts don't care about your feelings. And, uh, and I kind of reinterpreted it as the head doesn't care about the heart. Yeah. You know, if you think of the facts being intellectual data information, don't care about your feelings. Like, Okay, yes, on a certain level, that is true, but should it be true? 
you know, and what I'm advocating for is to get people back into their hearts. That's where we belong. That's your center. That's where your essence is. That's where your love is, your compassion, your connection, all of those things. And it's not to say to forget the mind, but the mind is not meant to be the dominant aspect of our being. It doesn't know how to run your life. It doesn't know how to run the world. It's supposed to be in service to your heart. Your heart is connected to that intuitive part of us that just knows, knows what to do in every situation without having to think about it, just spontaneously acting in accordance with, you know, what's going on, what is needed, what is the moment required. And we've so overcomplicated that with our gravity to thinking all the time that it has steamrolled over emotions and the importance of our feeling. And we do see that overcorrection maybe on the left of like too much feeling, messy feeling, emotions flying all over the place, right? And it's like, they're just kind of mirroring each other. And, you know, eventually we will find that balance, but it's not going to be through Ben Shapiro and it's not going to be through the far left. It's going to be people finding this middle of like, how can I balance and honor all of these aspects of my being, you know, both my, my head and my heart, um, but not leave it to my head to think all the time and solve everything like it's an equation. You know, I was thinking about the connecting the dots and the red pilling and all that. Like you can just lead yourself. I've seen it happen. It almost happened to me just going down rabbit holes of madness of trying to figure out what's the master plan and what can I do about it? Well, nothing. The only thing you can do about it is take care of yourself and you're not taking care of yourself watching YouTube rabbit holes of conspiracies, you know? You'd be better served to sit in silence and meditate and close your eyes and and feel what's going on in your body. Just feel. Just most people don't even know how to do that. Just get in touch with like what is happening right now within me. I've been surprised that some mornings I sit down and meditate and I'm like, oh, I just feel like there's some tears that need to come out. I don't know why there's no story, but maybe just some emotion that hasn't been able to be expressed or I didn't have space for it because I was running around doing whatever. But here I am giving myself permission to feel and to just release. And it keeps me in a, in a calm, happy state to go through the rest of my day without taking stuff out on my wife or my daughter or whomever, you know, (laughs) that was the most bizarre thing happened to me on Saturday this past weekend. I'm in the car and driving my daughter to her soccer tournament and she's listening to music and this band, good Charlotte came on, which I was never really in the good Charlotte but it reminded me of my friend's band who was got some success. They went out on tour with a band called Papa Roach at one point in time. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, I should play this for my daughter because she knows the drummer. Um, So I I, I put on that band and we're playing it and I'm pulling up 95. I got about 10 more minutes left and I'm looking, I'm going, why am I crying? (laughs) And I turned to my daughter, my son's in the back seat and she goes, you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm really sorry. Um, and she goes, well, what's going on? I'm like, I, I, I just didn't expect to like tear up over this. And she goes, well, what's causing it? And I said, it, the song just made me really emotional. She goes, oh, I'll turn it off. I'm like, no, please don't. I said, the guitarist that was playing that song taught me how to play guitar when I was 14. And he passed away like eight years ago. And I don't think I've ever listened to the music in the sense of like, I'm sharing this with my child and I'm sharing a part of me because of that journey we were tied together. I mean, I'm getting emotional thinking about it right now, 
Um, it was powerful. And I, I, I got to the soccer place and I was a mess. Like I'm standing there watching the game, still thinking about this beautiful moment that I had of my friend Ryan's not here anymore, but yet he is. And I got to share that moment of the music that he made. And when I play my guitars that are behind me for my family and stuff, I'm sharing a piece of Ryan of him teaching me when I was in high school, how to play. And that connection just moved me so much in that moment. And then my daughter, she said the most beautiful thing. She goes, it's okay to cry in front of me, dad. <laughs> I'm going, wow. I've never thought about the permission to be emotional unless somebody dies in, in front of my, my kids. I'm like, why did it take 12 years of her life for me to think in those terms? Uh, but it was a beautiful, beautiful unearthing of a moment that just you talking about that. I'm thinking, wow. Yeah. I experienced that for myself just recently. Yeah. Wow. Well, that's really beautiful. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, my daughter at this point has seen me cry so many times, you know, it's just a part of our family life, which makes it sound like I cry all the time. I really don't, but there have been key moments when like, I'm not afraid to let my emotion out, you know? And she told me recently, she said, um, she said, I like your face when you cried, Dada. Like it, it looks, I forget what she said. It looks nice or something. There was just like the same with your daughter. There's that recognition of like, this is real. What you're right. feeling is real. And it's tied to something bigger that, that relationship you had not only to the guitar player to rhyme, but to music itself and to mm -hmm. the music of the cosmos and the way music lights us up and, and ties us to moments in time. And, you know, music is very emotional, right? It's emotionally centered and it helps us to get into that expression of ourselves. Um, so I think it's really beautiful. And I, I, as you're saying that too, I'm thinking about the, facts don't care about your feelings type of people where I really think the way that the mind has dominated or not given permission to the feelings, it's not like the feelings become irrelevant. I think what ends up happening is we end up acting on behalf of our repressed feelings. I think that's where you get violence and things like that coming out is like, I think if you have a healthy emotional life and you're feeling your feelings and you're crying when you need to, you're not doing acts of violence or horrible things to people. You know, that's, that's what happens when you don't get to feel, when you don't get to be fully expressed. So it's such a simple thing, but I'm so grateful to be able to raise my daughter in this way where she's allowed to feel her feelings, whatever they are. And she's allowed to feel them to completion, you know? Um, that's another funny thing. Like, I'll tell you a funny story. When my daughter was little, I remember one time she fell and like scraped her knee and she started crying. And as soon as she started crying, like as soon as she started crying, she screamed, I can't stop crying, which was so funny that like, that was where her mind went was this fear yeah. of this big feeling of like, this is never going to end. I'm going to be stuck in this. And I think that's what happens is we get afraid of our feelings. We get afraid of how big they can be and what they can bring up that we do. Like, no, 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 not safe, not safe. Or we don't have space for it. Or people are going to judge us or tell us to shut up or whatever. And so 
we do need that permission. We do need that space and we do need that support to be able to feel our feelings. And when we can feel our feelings, like there's a cycle to them. Like you're not going to cry forever. You're not going to be sad or grieve or whatever it is. Like some of those feelings can hang out for a long time, but like there's an intelligence to this body machine that knows how to process emotion. If we just let it, if we just stay out of its way, you know, and that was a lot of the work I did in my early psychedelic journeys was lots and lots of crying, you know, letting go, seeing these situations come up where I needed to, I needed to grieve. I needed to grieve the sadness of my childhood that I didn't have room to feel or express then, or, you know, forgiveness from, you know, complicated relationships with my parents or whatever it is. And just to have that space. I mean, I needed the kick in the pants. I needed to be hit hard with these psychedelics in order to really there's no reason I should have had to cry this much in this short of a period of time other than I didn't let myself. You know, what's phenomenal to me about your journey. I'm just thinking that the pharmaceutical industry has people hooked on their pharmaceuticals at the tune of billions of dollars, whether it's antidepressants, uh, antipsychotics, whatever it may be how many of these individuals could have been helped with a psychedelic therapy? Do you think? Yeah. I mean, probably most of them. (laughs) I mean, you know, there's a caveat like psychedelics are not for everybody. Not everybody's going to have a good time with that. Um, And there's definitely like for anybody listening, you know, be very careful if you're on medication to use psychedelics, like talk to a professional because there's lots of contraindications with certain medications that you mm-hmm. could have, you know, adverse reactions potentially. Um, that said, this is what our ancestors did. People have been drinking ayahuasca, eating mushrooms for thousands and thousands of years in indigenous cultures, and they don't have antidepressants. They don't have need for them because they can hold this space for each other to process whatever they're going through. And these medicines are of a tremendous support to be able to process and release. The medicines themselves are like great healers. You know, the ayahuasca um, and and mushrooms have uh, like a master spirit, you know, that you can interact with uh, when you're under the influence. And that, that spirit sort of wrecks healing in your system through its own intelligence, which I still, after the number of times I've used them, don't understand. You know, I recently was telling someone like that. It's why they call it magic mushrooms. Like, I don't know. It seems magical. (laughs) I had a, I had a a pain in my lower back for like a year. And then after some mushrooms, it just vanished. I don't know how that happened. (laughs) I'm grateful that it did, but it just has ways of bringing things back into balance and into the flow in a way that you, creates healing in a very natural way. Were you thinking about the pain uh, when you were taking them and like thinking about being healed or is it just a rewiring? I think it's just a rewiring. There's a lot of things that happen in that state that I'm not directing, controlling, intending even, right. you know, there's just a rebalancing of your energy centers, what people call your chakras. Um, 
there's it, it works in such a multi-dimensional way that it's really impossible for the mind to track and understand what is happening in any given psychedelic journey it's truly mystifying and not even the light and color show that can happen like that's its own sort of um, experience which can be remarkable and beautiful but isn't necessarily healing in and of itself it's the stuff that goes on in the body and in the mind and in the heart you know it's it's just these things are from nature they are from spirit and they are expressions of love and I have I have a friend he, one of my um, breath coaches who said likes to say uh, love will bring up anything unlike itself for the purpose of healing so the love of whatever you want to call it will will show you where's the parts of yourself that are not in love that are not that are withholding love that are not in forgiveness or permission or whatever it is you know so the journey is really n not to become love or find love but just to clear away the blocks that are preventing us from experiencing that love because that love, that happiness, that joy, that is our our true nature. That's who we are before we complicated it with our our thinking and our concepts and our beliefs and all these structures, you know. Look at children, right? Like I I love one of the things I I kept from my Christian upbringing was the the verse um that Jesus says unless you become like the children, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? What are children like? They're innocent, they're open, they're loving, they're playful, they're not serious, they're not caught in separation with each other. There's just this openness to them. And I love that. I love the number of stories about children kind of swarming Jesus because they recognize he gets it. He knows how to play. I have to imagine Jesus was very playful and probably had a great sense of humor, you know, stuff we don't necessarily hear about. But that is the kingdom of heaven is, is it's here. It's not somewhere we go in the afterlife, although it may be that too, but like, it's not something we have to wait for. It's just the awareness of the divine in all of this, in all of creation, in each other. And it's really quite simple. And when we can orient to that way of seeing the world through our own healing and awakening process and practice, um, you know, like I said, everything else just kind of falls into place after that. We don't have to worry about what do we do about Agenda 2030, right? Like if enough <laughs> people wake up to who they are, it will take care of itself. We will find a way to shut it down or not comply or whatever it is, you know, like it's, it's not something we have to scheme and worry about, you know, it'll all just kind of naturally take care of itself. That's what I think. So at the end of the day, Bobby McFerrin was right. Don't worry, be happy. <laughs> Don't worry because you are happiness itself. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Sometimes it's easier. Said Too many than syllables done. for that song. <laughs> Not as catchy. Not as catchy. Sure. But you know, I also to get not to throw too much shade at Bobby McFerrin, but like sometimes we compulsively worry, so we have to we have to honor that part of ourselves too, and not. Right. Push back on what's happening. You know, sometimes it's easier to just say, oh, I noticed that I'm worrying right now. Give that a little space. Don't resist it. Don't push back on it and see what happens. Right. But when we give ourselves mandates of don't do this, we're creating right. resistance and we're certainly going to do more of that. It's a nice so reminder. I mean, so you're I, saying Master Yoda was correct. 
Which which master Yoda? So Yoda saying, "Do or do not." There is no try. He wanted to eliminate the negative connotations. Eliminate the should. Eliminate the do not. uh, Just do. Just be. Yeah. Yeah. It's that simple. You know, read the Tao Te Ching. Did you ever read the Tao Te Ching? No. That's got a lot of good short verses that kind of speak in this kind of language. You know. Okay. This is the way of heaven. Do your work and then quietly step back. Things like that, you know, it's like, it's very simple, all of this. And it can't really be spoken about. Everything I'm saying is kind of dancing around right. this transcendent reality, which is because I'm using my mind and I'm using language, which is going to be unclear sometimes and is going to kind of dance around. I can't, you know, the, the name God does not really tell you what God is. Right? It's a label that we hang on something that's ultimately mysterious and beyond comprehension. But we do the best we can to use words to communicate these concepts, to try to point ourselves in the right direction, to point ourselves, you know, it's not the finger pointing at the moon, right? Yeah. So it, we're, if somebody's listening to the show and they're like, this is pretty interesting stuff we have going here. Psychedelics, talk about the legalization. We got states like Oregon that have already legalized. I think the criminalization of psychedelics in your own state of Colorado exists for small amounts. Um, if people wanted to go on a journey and wanted to immerse themselves into this type of world and talk to somebody about where they get started, uh, how does somebody get in touch with somebody like yourself or get in touch with yourself to prepare them on mentally what's next. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the way I do is um, I, I do coaching and preparation work for people that are, are stepping into this world to just kind of talk about what is it like? How do you prepare? How do you take care of your body leading up to this? What can you expect? Just kind of basic questions. What does it feel like when it's coming on? What do I do when I get into a tough spot with it, you know, and just kind of offer people some guidance around that. Um, there are other people, there's a growing, you know, number of people and organizations that are sort of offering this service, these kinds of services. I don't necessarily want to like plug any of those because no, I don't know them um, firsthand. I'm not trying to get anybody arrested either, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> no. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, you know, yeah. I'm not providing medicines to anybody, um, but I'm helping people to prepare for these experiences. I also do the integration uh, work with people, which is another very important and often overlooked aspect of psychedelic therapy is what do I do when it's over? Right. Because it can be such a big and powerful and overwhelming experience. Um, you know, a lot can happen in the experience that feels like complete but a lot of times there can be lingering questions or something that maybe feels like it's not totally complete. And so we can dig into that a little bit and kind of help that energy get where it needs to go so people can feel balanced in themselves. But to me, the work of psychedelics is not to go see the pretty colors and have visions of God. It's, it is how can I live a better life? How can I be a better husband and father and member of society? You know, and... I think too often people are just chasing the roller coaster of psychedelics and and don't really do the integration work after. There's this beautiful window 
after a psychedelic journey where your mind is really open. There's a lot of like new plasticity and kind of openness happening in there where you can really make some powerful changes in your life to go in directions that you want to go in. But we have this momentum of the ego self, which, you know, is looking for opportunities to like shut it down and go back to the way things were because that's familiar and that's comfortable. Even if we were not happy, you know, at least we can try to control it better. So it can be a little scary and shaky, which again is why it can be helpful to have a guide in these spaces um, to really take advantage of what's happening to you in the days and sort of weeks after a big experience like that, where like you can really be open to seeing things in different ways that maybe you, you weren't otherwise. And it can be really, you know, powerful work to do in that space. So if somebody wanted to reach out to you, how did they do so? Uh, anybody wants can check out my website, ordinaryawakenings.com. Um, you know, you can see my different services on there. I do all my work virtually uh, as well as in person. If anyone's in Colorado, I'd be happy to connect. But, um, you know, we can do this all at the quantum level too over over Zoom or whatever. Um, there it is, Ordinary Awakenings. Look at that fella. Um, yeah, I love doing this work. I do uh, spiritual coaching work as well, which kind of is more partnering with people over uh, a few months, three to six months typically, where we can really dig in and look at your belief system, look at what's holding you back and do some of this work that we've been kind of touching on tonight, you know, giving yourself permission to feel and and looking at where you might need to um, practice some forgiveness, you know, techniques or, I, I, you know, I really meet people where they're at and just try to take them deeper into themselves, try to find, help you find your own answers. I'm not trying to give you what I'm selling. I want to lead you to your own truth. You know, that's the only way that it works no one ever changes for other people we only change because it makes sense to us um but i see i do see that sacred quality in everyone i work with you know i, I don't see the brokenness i see that people <laughs> are perfect as they are everybody's on their own healing journey they're they're learning they're growing they're evolving in every lifetime and um i'm just happy to support people and and love talking about this stuff so appreciate you no it's it, it's it's on. evident uh, you know having the discussion there's so many other conversations we could have i'd love to get into another conversation uh where we could get into what would people expect what is it like uh to enter that world what you know should you expect your pulse to increase are you aware of that like <laughs> I, i'd love to do a show with you just talking about some of those things um OrdinaryAwakenings.com, everybody. Uh, on there, you can learn more about his services as well as I see you have a book, a free introductory session as well. So make sure if you'd like to speak with David, go ahead and click on that. Uh, it will bring you uh, to a scheduling form uh, for everything from Windows to Wellness Specials, Energy Healing Sessions, Spiritual Life Coach, Space Clearings, Plant Medicine Preparation inter, uh, Integration to the free introductory session. So make sure you scroll down to the bottom there. You'll see that 
Uh, and then let David know you, you heard about it here on America Emboldened. You were speaking with uh, Greg and David uh, during the show and what piqued your interest? Because I would love for him to share with me, you know, if this show was was helpful to, to you guys. Um, I hope that it was. Uh, David, I, I think that this is a side of uh, content that people aren't concentrating on right now. And I think it's it's a good thing to be having this conversation with you and to recalibrate my show in different ways from time to time to make sure that I'm serving people something that's fresh and helpful and not just regurgitating the same thing that they can find uh, by listening to a Ben Shapiro or somebody like that. And so I appreciate you coming on to the show and being willing to to have this conversation with me. It, it, was, it was really enlightening and even more so to, to reconnect tonight. It was, it was nice. Yeah, it was very nice, Greg. Thanks for having me on. And I, I appreciate you stretching yourself out of your comfort zone a little bit here and exploring some, you know, unexplored territory. And yeah, it's, it's fascinating. It's endless. Like what's going on inside of us, I think is way more interesting than what's going on out there. <laughs> so the real journey is the journey within, and I'd be happy to, you know, connect with anybody who wants to take their next step on that journey and happy to come back and talk with you anytime. Thank you. Appreciate it, David. Yeah. All right, bold Americans. I hope I say this every single episode. I hope that we honored your time. Well, and I really believe that this was a good honoring of your time it didn't rely on some of the other places that I go to Avenue wise talking politics. And I find myself at the end of the show right now, feeling calm, uh, feeling hopeful and feeling like that was worthwhile for me. If it was worthwhile for me, then hopefully it was also for you as well. Leave me some comments, go over, you can find this in video format on all those channels, whether it's YouTube, Rumble, Patreon, etc. Patreon.com backslash America Emboldened. If you're listening on the America Out Loud Network, you got the comment section there as well. Write to me. Let me know how this information, what resonated with you. I want to hear from you. I want to know more. And then we can calibrate the show together as the Bold American audience and figure out what exactly it is you would like to hear more of that's it that's all everybody you've been listening to america emboldened with greg bolden my special guest david darling be bold america 